Good morning, great men and women of God. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you brought a Bible with you, if you have an app on your phone, you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11. And I read something this week that I thought I wanted to share with you. Let me read this to you. Author named David Johnson writes this. One of the things that got Jesus in trouble was his table habits. It wasn't only his preaching that led to his crucifixion, it was also his eating. More specifically, the cast of characters with whom he chose to eat. Tables, you see, tell stories. They tell the story of who's in and who's out, of who belongs with whom. And according to Jesus, if you've recognized your ultimate need, forgiveness and restoration with God and with others, and you have turned to him to meet that need, then you belong to Jesus, you belong to God, and all who've likewise turned to him, welcome to the table. And he says this, this means that Jesus does not require purity or certain earthly identity markers before he will share a meal with us. Rather, when we share a meal with Jesus, the meal has a mysterious way of creating purity within us of shaping us into the image of what God created us to be. I just like that. I like that thought that Jesus doesn't say, here are the hoops to jump through before I'll eat with you. Rather, why don't you eat with me and let's see what happens. This is what's most important to Jesus. And sometimes what it takes to see what is most important to Jesus is a table. And that's why we're in a series right now in the Gospel of Luke. We're just going, following Jesus from table to table throughout this book and we're, we're, we're cluing into the fact that Jesus said of himself that he came three different ways. He calls himself the Son of Man. And he said the Son of Man came to seek and to save. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And the Son of Man came what? And drinking. The first two are why he came. Why did he come? He came to seek and save the lost. He came, why did he come? He came to not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But how he came was eating and drinking to show people one table at a time, what was really most important in life. And so one of the things that we're hoping to see happen as we walk through this gospel with Jesus is that we recover the table in our own lives as a spiritual practice that we can help bring the kingdom and the party wherever we are, one table at a time. And so today we're going to join Jesus at another table in the gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11. And what's going to happen today is Jesus is going to make a serious social blunder. That turns into a discussion of what's most important. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 11, let's have a seat together at the table. Verse 37, here we go. A Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner at his house. Now remember the Pharisees. These guys get picked on, but they were very passionate, very faithful people. They cared about two things more than anything on the planet. They cared about God and they cared about the country that in which they lived. And you could sum up the Pharisees with this tweet. This is how they thought. If we can just be holy, God will be happy and that will bring the kingdom. This is actually what they thought. If we are good enough, God will be happy enough and that will usher in the kingdom and we'll get rid of all these Roman occupiers. We'll get rid of all these people that are causing us problems. We'll just have blessings and everything will be great. Now, you are either with them or you are against them. There is no middle ground. 
There is no thought of, well, I just, I, you know, maybe that's true. No, you are either with them or against them. Now, if you are with them, then you will follow their rules and the way that they have interpreted the Torah, the, the, the Bible for them, and then that will make God happy and you'll help bring the kingdom and you'll be pure. But if you don't follow their rules, then you are labeled a sinner. And that means that you are somebody that is causing problems in the country. It means that God is not going to bring his blessing and it's all going to be your fault. That's where it is. So this Pharisee invites Jesus to come to dinner because he's trying to figure out, Jesus, I can't get a handle. Are you with us or not? Are you pure and holy or are you one of those sinners? So Jesus went in and sat down. And the Pharisee watching him was surprised that he didn't first wash before dinner. Jesus Christ does not wash his hands before he eats. So first of all, gross. <laughs> Second of all, what is really happening here? Is he just kind of, uh, maybe he's just so holy he never has to wash his hands, or he just goes, looks at him and they become clean. I don't know how this works. Well, one of the ways that the Pharisees would make God happy was to practice this ritual before eating. See, they read in their Torah that God wanted people to be pure. So they said, you know what pure looks like? And they started adding these different rules. And one of the rules was the special purity ritual of washing your hands before a meal. It was a, a symbolic act. It was an act designed to say it's not just about cleanliness. It was more about godliness. One time I was visiting uh, with a church in Malawi, and we'd gone on a mission trip there, and this, uh, these three guys and I were traveling around, and we ended up inside this uh, hut in this village. I could not find it to this day, if you ask me. And it was this adobe hut, and we're all crowded around a table, not much bigger than this, and there's like nine of us sitting around this table. And they brought out this bowl, and they poured water into it like this. And then the very first guy sitting over here sticks his hands in there, and begins to wash his hands. And I think, well, that's pretty cool. And then he takes the bowl and passes it to the person next to him. And I thought, that is not cool. <laughs> because I see the end of this story, and it's me. And this bowl that all these people, the, the team that we're with, the, the people that are hosting us, and I, you know, we're, we're walking around their hands, the, the water's getting dirtier and dirtier as it's coming around to me. And I'm thinking, what do I need? What should I do? I don't want to put my hands in there. I, I, that's gross to me. So the bowl came to me, and they sat it down in front of me, and I'm looking down, and it looks like soup at this point. And I thought, what do I do? Well, I don't want to offend my host. So I stuck my hands in, and I, I kind of rinsed off the dust and shook it like this, and they hand me this towel, and I dried my hands off. And then I felt the saving touch of God nudging my leg. And Reagan, the guy with me, was poking my leg with a little bottle of Purell gel. And I thought, thank you, Reagan. And so I just kind of cleaned myself there. Well, see, that, 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 that ceremony wasn't truly about getting your hands clean. It was a symbolic act that they were doing before dinner. It's kind of what's happening here with Jesus. But Jesus is very different than me. Jesus does not seem concerned with offending his host. Why? I think that Jesus didn't purify his hands because he wanted to teach about a new purity that was more important. Let's see what it is. Now you Pharisees, said the master to him, you clean the outside of the plate and the cup, but your insides are full of violent robbery and wickedness. That's stupid. This is the New Testament for everyone translation. I like that line. He says, didn't the one who made the outside make the inside as well? You should give for alms what's inside the bowl, and then everything will be clean for you. Now you see that word alms. 
Alms is another word for uh, what you might give to someone in need or to give to someone that is poor. The Pharisees, he says, you guys keep your plates clean, but you wouldn't share a single thing on that plate with somebody who really needs to eat it. In other words, you think that purity is about what you do for God instead of what you do for other people. And that's the true purity. And you have missed what is most important. Now, we're sitting here thinking, okay, this is just a, you know, it's a little teaching moment he has there, maybe a little social faux pas, maybe a little bit of a religious quibble, but then Jesus goes off. He gets ratchet up here. Listen what he says, but woe betide you Pharisees. How many of you have said that this week? Woe is a big word. It is formal language. I don't look at you when I say woe to you. Woe is this language of divine judgment. You read the prophets in the Old Testament when they are saying, hey, your city's going to get destroyed. Woe to you. This is basically saying, woe means this, how terrible it's going to be when God shows up to deal with you. And Jesus is saying this to his host, woe. And he goes on to give a series of woes to this table gathering, these guests that are gathered. And what he's saying is, your most important doesn't line up with God's most important. And let me show you how. Now, he gives six woes here, and that sounds like a lot. Let me just kind of run through those and see if you can pick up a pattern here. He's going he's to say this. The very first woe is this. You guys think following rules is most important. But woe betide you Pharisees, Jesus continued. You tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds, and you've sidestepped, what? Justice and mercy and the love of God. You should have done these without missing the others. Now, he's saying, Pharisees, you guys follow the rules. You get it. You tithe, meaning you, you give a little bit of the first part of whatever you make, your income or whatever you earn. But you're tithing on small things, like you're going out to your garden and snipping off 10% of the different seasonings, and you're giving that to the synagogue, but you're not giving God what he really wants, mercy, justice, and love. You're majoring on the minors. Now, I get this. As a person who likes to follow rules, I get this, because following rules is much easier than loving other people or showing mercy to someone. That's messy. Jesus goes on, and he says, you know, you also... You guys think that your reputation, that's most important. Woe betide you Pharisees, you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. The front row of every synagogue, if you walked in, you knew who the front row was for, right? It's for the special people, the holy people, the Pharisees. If you saw them in the marketplace, you know what you'd do? You'd bow your head, oh yes sir, oh hello, oh yes. I want to show you great respect because you are so spiritual. The Pharisees thought that how people saw them was more important than how they saw other people. Jesus goes on. He says, you guys think that being holy, that's most important. Woe betide you. You were like hidden tombs and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, that, uh, this took a little work for me to try to understand what's being said here. Here's what's going on. One of the Old Testament purity rules was don't touch something that's dead. That will make you unclean and then you'll have to go through these ceremonies to kind of be pure again. So the Pharisees said, well, let's, we can do better than that. We can take that rule and we can add our own twist to it. And so they even had a rule that you couldn't even touch a grave. You couldn't even walk near graves. They kept adding these rules. And what Jesus is saying is you're adding rules are actually hindering people from coming to God. Your way of life is really a way of death. 
Now let me pause at this moment and say, if you were at this meal, you think that these three woes would have shut people up. If Jesus just said, hey, woe to you, woe to you, and woe to you. But there's always that one guy. The guy who responds to Jesus' woes by saying, whoa, Jesus. Listen to what he says. One of the legal experts spoke up. Teacher, he said, when you say these things, it's like you're insulting us too. So Jesus has been railing on the Pharisees, and now the legal expert says it almost sounds like you're saying something's going on with us. Do you remember when you were a kid and you saw your brother getting chewed out by your parents? And then you said something, and they turned and saw you, and you thought, why did I say anything? I feel like I, I would love to be back then. I have this image in my mind that this guy's buddy is next to him going, yeah, don't say it, don't say it. Who are these legal experts? Well, these are these legal experts, or your Bible might say the scribes, they are the ones who wrote the books. See, the Pharisees enforced them, but the scribes were the ones that they were the, the lawyers, the legal work. They were scouring the scriptures, finding different rules and ways to make things easy so that everything would be covered by their rules. And one of the big beliefs they had was, you know, when God put the Torah together, he really wasn't very clear. But that's why we have these books, to make things more clear. And if you break our rules, that's worse than breaking God's rules. They actually had this statement in one of their documents. They said, it is more important to observe the scribal interpretations than the law itself. They believe that. Now you think, well, that sounds a little crazy, but here's what they're thinking is, well, look, the Bible is, we would call it, the Bible's unclear, it's kind of vague, but we're clear. So we can understand that you might make a mistake and not really obey the Bible when it's vague, but there's no excuse for not obeying the rules that we have done. Because all we've done is just make the Bible more clear. Where have you heard that before? We all know what this is. We've all experienced making our own rule books. Sometimes we make up rule books to give clarity to something we believe or to say, this is what this means to be a part of us or this is what it means to not or this is how we're going to practice this. But it's easy to let our guidelines get to the point where if you break those, then you're really offending God and you're breaking God's rules. It's easy for us to say that our books are the same as his. How many of you have a church background in your life? You say, yeah, I have some kind of church background, okay. I want you to, to be able to shout this out to me. Name a rule that was a good rule, maybe, but you realize now wasn't really God's rule. It was your church's rule, but it really wasn't God's rule. Now that you've had 10 years to think about it, 20 years to think about it, what's, a, what's an example of something like that? Like what? Fish on Friday during Lent. Okay. Is that in the Bible? Okay. All year? You, it's, you like fish. What else is a rule? Dancing. The rule was against it or for it? What was it? Against it, right? So the, the Bible didn't say anything about that, but one way that someone probably had a good rule, they thought, you know, dancing could lead to this, and so let's just make a rule that says no one can do this. But over time, that rule becomes more important than the truth. What's another one? No shopping on Sunday? Yeah. No drinking on Sunday? Okay. Um, at the risk, I, I'm not making a political statement, I'm just making an observation. Years ago in this country, they came up with a flag code of conduct. 
to help people know how to honor the flag and treat the flag with respect. And that code of conduct now, it seems, is being played out on TV and in our news and everything. It's, it's now become a litmus test of who's an American and who's not, of who loves the troops and who clearly hates the troops. And it's become this battleground. And, and, and I'm imagining the people that wrote that flag code of conduct, that, that this wasn't what they had in mind at all. And yet, now it's become the litmus test. And that's what happens with rule books. So sometimes they tell the story of who's at the table and who's not. Part of my spiritual journey over the last few decades has been unpacking the difference between what I was taught and what the Bible actually says. One of the things that's helpful to keep in mind is there's a difference between dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Dogma is got to be true. Jesus rose from the dead. Doctrine is where we're going to disagree on some things. How and when will Jesus return? And then you have opinion. What song are we going to play in church today? What happens is sometimes our opinions and our doctrines get moved to the level of dogma, and that's what happens with these scribes. So what this scribe is saying is this. Jesus, <laughs> you're, you're attacking these Pharisees. It almost sounds like you're talking about us. All we do is tell people what it means to follow God. So then Jesus turns his attention towards this dude as well. He says, well, I got some woes for you. You think that obedience is the most important thing to God. Woe betide you lawyers also, Jesus said. You give people heavy loads to carry. They can hardly bear, and you yourself don't lift a finger to help. When you think that obedience is the most important thing, then you expect it from other people, and it becomes this burden. For example, keeping all of this ritually clean water around was expensive. You couldn't just go get water out of the river. You had to go down to the temple or down to the synagogue. You had to bring special water, and it cost money. So this rule not only kept out the unclean, think about this, it kept out the poor. Unless you were upper class, you couldn't be pure. Poverty was impurity. They had set up a rule. Tried to honor God, but this rule became a burden, and people were going, we don't have enough money to keep clean. Okay, well then, you're out of luck. I've seen this actually still today in places like, like I was in Haiti, and I was talking with this family as we were visiting some, from kind of house to house, and I asked them, you know, do you guys go to church? No, we, we don't go to church. We're not allowed to go to church. Oh, really? Why are you not allowed to go to church? Well, the pastor said that our clothes aren't nice enough, and if we're not ready to honor God with how we dress, then we can't go to church. I'm sure that was a good rule that that pastor had, right? At first, hey, let's really dress up and honor God. But then it became a burden too heavy, and now people can't go. He goes on. He says, you lawyers, you think tradition is the most important. Woe betide you. You build the tombs of the prophets, and your ancestors killed them. So you bear witness that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed them, and you build their tombs. This is another crazy one that took some digging. What he's saying is this. You guys build monuments to the prophets of the past, but you reject the prophets of today, like me, like John the Baptist. We are representing God and telling truth, and you reject us, and you want to kill us. So how are you any different than the prophets that were rejected and killed back then? You act like the only good truth is old truth. New ways of thinking about God are always wrong. Speaking of truth, one last woe. This is the big one, ready? You think... Protecting the truth is most important. Woe betide you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't even go in yourself and you stopped people who were trying to go in. Only the scribes had the keys to God. Hey, I think this about God. No, you don't. Let me tell you what you think about God. Common folk just don't get it. 
But the problem with having the key to God is they would even go inside the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. You said, I am the door. And they said, we're going to keep that door locked. This is what we're going to stick to. That's a lot of woes, right? Let's recap. What's most important? Is it following rules? Is it reputation? Is it being holy? Is it obedience? Is it tradition? Is it protecting truth? You know, when I look at a list like this, I think, gosh, all those seem like they're pretty important. I think those are important things. But Jesus says, woe to you. What you think is important is not what's important to God. And God's going to deal with you. These are heavy, heavy words. And you know what it took to surface these words? It took a table. Specifically, it took Jesus not washing his hands before a meal. So what is it that God thinks is most important? I'm going to invite Adam up, and I want to come back to this in a minute. But first, I want to give you a moment just to kind of sit. I'm going to take a, a break, and you can sit at the table with God. Let me give you a few questions that might guide this time for you. This is something to think about and talk with God about. What do I think is most important to God? If you were going to articulate that, what would you say it is? Here's a good question. How does, how does what you think is most important to God line up with how you live? And then this last one might be a little tricky. Is there anything that you think that you do or that we do as a church maybe that might make it harder for people to come to God? Let's take a few minutes and reflect with God at the table.
how do you figure out what's most important? Sometimes it just takes a table to do that. These religious rulers were concerned about purity, but they were not concerned about people. That's how I would just sum up all the woes. In other words, the religious rulers thought they could have a faith that loved God without loving people. They thought that could work. So they practiced the minor, but they missed the major. They strove to be holy, but it was for the wrong reasons. They actually hindered people from coming to God. They added burdens to faith. They, they worshiped the past. They rejected the new. They kept people from the real truth of God. And what they missed was that Jesus' table tells a different story. Jesus did not come to help them clean their plates. He came to turn over the tables. Let me explain how this works. In the old system, which we know is old because it was found in the Old Testament, God had a cause and effect deal that he worked with his people and his nation. If the nation was good, they were blessed, and if the nation was not, they were punished. This is where the Pharisees got this idea. They didn't just make it up. They got this idea. If we could just make the nation good again, God will be happy with us. If we can make the people in the nation good, God will be happy with us, and then he'll make the nation good again. Their goal in life, then, was we don't want to offend God so that we can be blessed and not punished. Now, many people still live with this orientation today. I don't want God to be mad. I want God to be happy. And so we constantly ask this question. Here's what the old orientation leads us to ask. Is blank a sin? You always have to worry. Are, are you upsetting God with how you wash your hands, with what you eat, if you worked on the Sabbath, if you danced, if you didn't eat fish on Friday? You always had to worry, is God going to be mad? Who's wrong? Who's right? What will people think? If I don't condemn this, will people think I'm condoning it? I'm always worried about all these things. And of course, we never have all the answers to this question because the Bible never has all the answers to this question. Remember, that was the whole reason that the Pharisees came and the scribes came up with these books because they felt like, well, it's a little vague. You know, it, it, God could be a little more clear. So we'll just do that for him. And along comes Jesus. At the most famous table ever, Je Jesus raises his glass and he says, I'm here to announce a new testament, a new covenant, a new system, a new orientation towards God that will make the old way obsolete. What are the terms of this new uh, testament? Or how long is this going to be? Really, it's one sentence. I'm giving you a new commandment and it's this. What? Three words. Love one another. Then he goes on just to explain, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. So what you've seen me do, that's what I want you to do. Now this is not new in the sense that, oh, here's another rule to add to these books. It's new like this. Behold the Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. The old system is obsolete. The new one is in place. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, Jesus did not add a rule to these rule books. What he did was this. He said, we're done. We got one new rule, and it's this. What does love require? W what about all these rules? It's one rule. What does love require? The whole of the New Testament are commands and expectations that are just coming back to the same statement. What does love require? As I have loved you, you are to love others. If you live this out, you will fulfill the command of Christ. If you don't live this out, then it doesn't matter how pure you are, you have failed. See, when you live with the old orientation, there's so many loopholes. You need books full of exceptions. Can I eat fish on Friday? What, what kind of fish can I eat on Friday? Well, how long can the fish? I mean, you've got you to come up with books and books and books to describe that. 
You need scribes and lawyers telling you what's wrong and right, who's in and who's out. But with a new orientation, all the loopholes close. It's simpler. It's not easier. But it is simpler. Jesus says that the way that you're going to love God now, the purity that I really want, is just to keep one command. What does love require? Now, let me show you how this works out. Um, So we have some rules in our family because you do have to have rules. And the number one rule in our family is we tell the truth. That's our number one rule in our family. We tell the truth. The number two rule is we respect mom. Dad's like way down the list. It's just we respect mom. The number three rule is we break down the boxes before we put them in the recycle bin so it doesn't get overflowed with boxes. But let's just go back to the first rule for a minute. We tell the truth. Why do we tell the truth? The old orientation would say, well, because lying is a sin, right? So um, God commands us to tell the truth, and, and lying is a sin, so that's why we don't do it. The new orientation is, what is love required? Lying is not loving to other people. When I lie to you, I break relationship. If I'm lying to you, I, I am not living out the command of Christ to love as I have loved you. That's why that changes for me. Here's another example. At Pulper Rock, we talk about being generous. Uh, Kyle talked about giving earlier. Why do we give? Well, because uh, old orientation said, well, not, not, not giving is a sin. In fact, if you give this much, then God will bless you with this. And if you don't give, then God will, will take away from you. And so you're pursuing this blessing and favor. It's a command. New orientation. What does love require? We're gener- generous because it helps people. I'm generous because I want to be the kind of person that is caring for others, that is truly loving others. And when I give my finances towards something that will help people, I am living out a command of what love requires. Why do we tell people about Jesus Christ? Why do we share our faith? Well, because if we don't do it, God's going to be mad. That would be a sin. No, here's a new orientation. What does love require? What's the most loving piece of information you could share with another human? The love of God. And the forgiveness found in Christ. See, we can keep going on with this stuff. We, why, why do we, we tell people, hey, there are, certain, there are certain things about being pure sexually that are important. And, and one of them is, is that we don't have sex outside of marriage. Why? Well, the old orientation is because that's a sin. And that would be bad. And God would be mad. And then he would take things away from me. And he'd punish me. And he'd do this. Here's the new orientation. What does love require? It is not loving to you. not the way it's supposed to be. I don't want to do anything that hurts you. I don't want to do anything that's going to hurt your future relationship. I don't want to be your regret. That's a sin. You know, I was thinking that Jesus was uh, like bringing this brand new stuff. And then I'll just tell you this real quick. This week I was reading in Luke chapter 3. I was reading through the the gospel with some guys. And I came upon this section where John the Baptist is telling, is baptizing people. So it's purity, right? He's baptizing people. He's getting them ready because the Messiah is coming. So he's a prophet. Messiah is coming. We got to get pure. We got to get ready. And so people are showing up and they're saying, okay, we get baptized, but what are we supposed to do? And I looked and I looked and I looked for him to say, you are supposed to memorize these verses. You are supposed to pray more. You are supposed to do these spiritual practices. He didn't bring it up. They said, John, how do we get ready for the Messiah? What what is he going to want from us? And he says, well, if you have two coats, you should give one to someone that doesn't have a coat. And if you have some food, you should share that with people. And then the tax collector said, well, what about us? And he goes, you should stop cheating people. You should deal with them fairly. Then a couple soldiers showed up, and they, remember the soldiers in the Roman Empire are very oppressive, not like they're just, a, they're bad dudes. And they said, what about us? And he said, you should stop using your power to oppress people. 
In other words, John said, hey, the way that you're going to prepare for this Messiah is change the way you treat people. What does love require? What does love require calls us out of loopholes and into life. It, it means we have to wrestle with God. Now we don't just have a little, a nice little book that we can turn to. Uh, we have to wrestle with the, the person of God in his scripture. We have to wrestle with what it means to, to love the person in front of us. It is so simple, and it is not easy. And yet it's the key to discipleship and faith and following Jesus. What does love require? Let me close with an example of this. Andy Stanley, I think, uh, has really nailed this well. He shares this example. He's, Andy says, if you mistreat my kids, we're going to have a problem. Don't invite me to lunch. Don't sing songs to me. Don't give me presents and money. If you're mistreating my kids, I don't want those things from you. You and I have nothing. But on the other hand, if you honor my kids, if you show love to my kids, if you help my kids, well, you'll be my friend forever. I love you because I love them. We're God's kids, and there's nothing more important to our Father than when we love people created in his image. God says, that's what I'm wanting. So what does it take to see what's most important? It, sometimes it takes a table. And so great men and women of God, Jesus does not require that we wash our hands before he will eat with us. He welcomes us to a table, and then he says, go and do as I have done. This week, as you share table with someone, we're pushing towards that. Would you take a moment in that meal to ask this question? Look at the person across from you and ask this question inside. Jesus, what does love require? What does love require me to say? What does love require me not to say? What does love require me to do in this moment? What does love require? Will you pray with me? Thank you for the clarity, Jesus, that you bring to our lives, and I also thank you for the messiness that you bring to our lives. Thank you for the new command. Help us to love your kids. Help us to love ourselves and the people you put in our paths this week. As we ask the question, what does love require? In Christ's name we pray, amen.